Great. Uh, thanks for, for joining us today and uh, for being with us in, in worship. Um, we're going to look into God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 4. I usually, for those who are new, uh, I usually have a little timekeeper up here. I don't see him today. Uh, he usually walks out when it's time for me to end my sermon, but um, I'm looking for him, but he's not here. Um, We've been going through First Peter, and there's a lot of ground that I, I want to cover today, and so we're just going to jump into it. But First Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10, but uh, we're talking about Peter's letter. He wrote it to believers in, in Asia Minor uh, in the first century, um, probably about 30 years after Jesus uh, died and, and resurrected and ascended into heaven. He's writing to a group of believers who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, uh, have been in the midst of, of persecution by the Roman Empire, uh, who looks at these Christians and views them as strange and views them as, as, as weird and, and um, just really social outcasts because of the things that they believe and the values that they embrace and the beliefs that they, that they have. And, and so for these, these believers that Peter's writing to, there's a strong, very strong temptation uh, and a strong challenge in wondering, is it really worth it for me to continue to follow Christ? When there's so much at, at stake, when, when their lives were being, were, were being taken and when they were uh, being ridiculed for the faith that they had in a God that they couldn't see. And the question that many of them were asking was, is, is it worth it for me to still follow this Jesus? And what Peter's writing, he's writing to say is that this world isn't home for you, okay? If this world was home and you're going through all this persecution and hardship and difficulty, then it would make sense for you to pack up your bags and say, forget this whole Jesus thing. I'm going to live however I want to live. But Peter's writing to say, this world isn't your home, Hey, you're just an alien, you're just a stranger, you're just passing through on the way to glory, on the way to your true home. And so as long as you're here, understand that you're an alien, that this is not what you consider to be home. And because that's true, there's a glory that awaits you. So keep on going, keep on fighting. When it seems like you're walking through hell, he says, and keep on going because you're not home yet. And as he writes, he's been giving different kinds of ammunition through these different passages that we've been going through. This is our sixth week now. He's been given different ammunition as, as ways of saying, keep on fighting the good fight. Keep on fighting the good fight because it's worth it because he's worth it. And so as we look into 1 Peter chapter 2, this is going to be actually the last in, in this series. And, and then we're going to take a break for six weeks and, and talk about Lent. And, and then we'll pick up after Easter. But as we look into this passage, it's a, it's a full passage, and I, if, if we had time, we'd kind of break this up and, and spend weeks unpacking it, but I only have one week and only have a short period of time to do this. So um, we'll jump into it. First Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. This is God's word. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. As we um, examine this passage, I just want to kind of show how um, God sees things a little bit differently, a lot differently than we see things. And just going to pull out three things here. And um, the first thing, the first thing I want to want to share is that Jesus Christ, Jesus um, was trashed by the world. But was. Chosen and cherished by God. Jesus was trashed by the world but he was chosen and cherished by God. If you look at verse four, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. And then jump down to chapter uh, verse six. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And then again in verse seven. Now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe the stone, the builders rejected has become the capstone. So obviously the picture that Peter is giving here is he's talking about a building project. Uh, last couple of times we've been to Ecuador, we've been involved in, in building projects. Two years ago, it was about taking a thousand cinder blocks, right? Stacked up and then moving them. We had to move them crazy. I mean, this was utterly insane. I, I can kind of imagine what the Israelites, when they were in slavery to Egypt, were, were doing. But we had to take a thousand cinder blocks and move them from one side of the river through the river uh, to a little island in the middle of the river. And you've heard this before, but let me say it again to kind of uh, throw a pity party. And we had to move it from the middle of the island onto a canoe. Okay, a thousand cinder blocks. This is like many times a canoe comes back over. And then through the river onto the other side of the riverbed. And then up a muddy hill that's probably about, I don't know, maybe 30 yards, but it was about a nine, it was like 90 degrees like, like this. We had to carry them up the hill and then another 200 yards to the place where we would ultimately leave uh, the bricks where the church building was going to be built. It was pretty crazy stuff. And as we're moving these things, there was no real good way to do it because we had about 15 people. And so we just set up an assembly line and we're throwing these cinder blocks through the river. Like we're like waist deep in, in water and we're throwing these blocks through the river. And, you know, we're, we're going pretty good pace and it's just kind of like catch it, throw it, catch it, throw it. And we get to a certain point in time where uh, we'd be cruising along, and then one of our guys, usually you know, was, uh, one of our guys named Punchy, would drop the, the, the thing, and then it would break. And everybody would be like, ah, oh, Punchy. And then after, like, it, it, I mean, I think in a sense, everyone was kind of glad that he dropped it because we could take a moment to rest our arms and then yell at Punchy, and then, and then we'd get back to it. And we'd look at these rocks, and if they, were st- if they were still good, then we would continue throwing them. If they were not, then we would just kind of leave them there and say, this is no good. Uh, last year when we were there, last summer when we were there, we were also part of another building, building a church in a village called Cabeno. And we had to take these different rocks and we're putting them ultimately uh, in the ground so that they could become the foundation of, of the church. And then we'd put uh, smaller rocks and then we'd put cement over it. Uh, but we'd be throwing these rocks. And as we're looking at them, ultimately the thing that we're all examining and looking at is can this rock, is this rock suitable? Is this rock uh, suitable to be used as part of the foundation of the building? That's the only question we're asking. It's very simple. And as Peter's describing this building project, he's talking about the same thing, the exact same thing. They're examining different rocks and saying, are these suitable to be part of the foundation of a building? Now, if you're, if you're building in those days, the first thing that you would look for, the first rock that you would look for is the cornerstone. And he's describing there's two different kinds of building projects. One is one done by men and another one is one done by God. 
in this building project, the first thing you would look for is your cornerstone. Why? Because that's the stone, simple stuff that goes in the corner. Hey, when you're doing a puzzle, you got like an 800-piece puzzle. The first thing that you look for, right, you don't look for the middle. You look for the corner piece. Why? Because from the corner, you can build out in every direction. The stone, the cornerstone was important because if it was true and if it was right and if it was perfect, then every line and every angle would be lined up according to it. But it wasn't just outward. It was also upward. Okay, If the stone was the right shape, then everything going up and everything going out would be level according to that stone. That's why you have to find that perfect one. And so these guys are looking and they're looking at the stone and, and he's saying the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So there's this one group of builders that are looking at this one stone. They're like, no, this is no good. Let's reject it. Let's throw it out. Let's trash it. And they get rid of it. And God looks at this and he says, this will become my cornerstone. And what is he talking about? It's interesting, isn't it? We all understand and our hearts resonate with this idea that one person's trash can become another person's treasure, right? Isn't that the beauty of things like Craigslist? Like someone's throwing out this stuff, curb alert. You ever read the curb alert where they're throwing all this stuff out? It's going to the curb. And if you want it, you can come grab it. And you can find all these amazing things that people are just getting rid of because to them it's trash, but to another person becomes treasure. I can bet, I can bet that somewhere in the world, somebody is proudly wearing some of the clothes that Olivia told me to get rid of because it's so ugly. And in some country, somewhere in some remote village, someone is wearing these clothes and they're like, man, this is amazing because one person's trash becomes another person's treasure. That's why... I, that's, I think that's part of the fascination with this whole Jeremy Lin story, isn't it? That this one person, he's a, he leads his team to a state championship twice in high school, and no major college wants to pick him up. He goes to Harvard, which isn't exactly a hotbed for basketball, but he becomes all-conference twice in a row. But no NBA team wants to draft him. No team wants him. Every team throws him out. They, they try him out. They look at him. They say, hey, you're all right, but we don't want you on our team. And finally, this one team signs him, and they say, hey, we want you on our team. And he runs with them for a little bit, and he gets that sent down to the minor leagues. They're like, you're not good enough. Get better. And then finally, they cut him. And then the team in Texas signs him. Houston signs him. And they're like, hey, we want, we want to have you on our team. And after a few days, he gets sent down to the minor leagues. you got to get a little bit better. And then after a while, he gets cut. And then New York picks him up, and they're like, hey, you know what? You need to get better. And they send him down to, to the minor leagues again. And he comes back up, and it's only because the guys in front of him get injured they're like, well, let's, let's give it a shot. We're playing back to back to back. Everyone's tired, so just get him in there. And then this guy beasts out. And all of a sudden, people are saying, this team, the New York Knicks, have the two of the best players in the NBA. But the question is, how do they fit in with this guy? Because the one that everyone else rejected has all of a sudden become the cornerstone, has become the foundation of the team. We understand what this is like. And as Peter's writing, he's saying, you know what? There's this guy, there's this man, Jesus, that everyone else in the world rejects. They said, he's nothing. He's awful. He's garbage. He's, let's reject him. And, and, and God takes him and he says, he's going to become the cornerstone. He's going to become the cornerstone of my new building that I'm, that I'm building here. Saying, this is Jesus. He was trashed by the world, but he was chosen and he was cherished by God. When it says he's a precious cornerstone, he's saying there's no one like him, that he's invaluable, he's irreplaceable. There's nobody like this Jesus. He is the precious cornerstone. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, this is how God sees Jesus, but how do we see him? Right? This is why we sing precious cornerstone. Sure foundation. You are faithful till the end. If this cornerstone, if this foundation is not faithful, then our lives are going to fall apart, guys. 
This is who Jesus is. And God is saying he's precious. There's nobody like him. Do you believe that he's all to us? And as, as I'm preparing this, I got, um, like I had a, I had a pretty, this, this week was kind of tough for me because I, I was living in the consequences of some, some bad decisions that I made. And, and it was affecting uh, Olive and it was affecting Manny. It was affecting uh, the way that I related to them. And, and I was just, just completely drained of, of energy and vitality. And as I'm reading this and, and I'm, I'm thinking about when, when we put our hope in Christ, when Jesus is our sure foundation, when he's our cornerstone, then our life won't fall apart. But every other foundation, we put matters into our own hands, our lives begin to fall apart. Maybe if your life is, is, is falling apart here, maybe if things aren't going well in your life, could it be that you've set up something else to be your cornerstone, that Jesus really isn't all that? precious. I had to confess as I'm preparing this and I'm just getting this text into my mind and and allowing it to change my heart. That God, for this week, you weren't everything that I wanted you to be, everything that you needed to be in my life. You weren't the precious cornerstone. I built my life upon the choices that I made and things began to fall apart. And I had to think to myself, is Jesus to me a kind of person that I can just pull out and reject whenever I want and love him when I want? Or is he going to become the precious cornerstone? Is he going to become irreplaceable, the everything that I need him to be, everything that he was meant to be in my life? And what about for you? Who is Jesus to you? There's no two ways. Of it. He said there's only, there's only two choices. Either you will reject him or you will cherish him. Either he will be trash or he will be precious to you. And what is Jesus in your heart? What is Jesus in your mind? Not just like what you think, but in, in, in our actions. Like we talk about raising a family on Christ. We talk about doing all this on, on, on the foundation of Jesus. But is he everything that we say he is? Is he everything that we sing him to be? This is the first thing that Jesus was rejected. He was trashed by the world, but he was chosen and cherished by God. What we think about Jesus matters is of ultimate importance because the second thing that we're going to see is what you think about Jesus. Your response to Jesus is not just an opinion. It shapes your identity. It's not just an opinion. It shapes your identity. Here's, here's, here's what I mean by that. With every other person in life, we talk about Jeremy Lehner. You talk about Tim Tebow, who's compared to you. You talk about... President Obama, you talk about Whitney Houston, any of these people, you think about them, you talk about these people, and the question is, what do you think about them? Do you like them? Do you not like them? And your opinion is just your opinion. That's all it is. But when it comes to Jesus, it's so much more than an opinion. If you look at what it says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priest. And then he says in verse six, see, I lay a stone in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. What, what, what is he talking about? Your response to Jesus is not just an opinion, like, just like it is with anybody else. Like, oh, I think he's pretty good and that's it and we can move on. He's saying your response to Jesus is going to shape your identity and it's going to shape the way that you live life because your identity always shapes your behavior. 
okay, who is Jesus to you? What do you think about Jesus? He says, if, he is re- if, you, if you reject Jesus, if he's not worth anything to you, then here's what it says. He says, you're going to reject him. He's going to cause you to stumble. He's going to make you fall, and you're going to disobey the message. However, if Jesus is precious to you, if he is a precious cornerstone, if he is all to us, then it's going to change the way that we live. We're going to trust in him, it says. Okay, in verse, in verse 6, it says, you're going to tr- put your trust in him. You're going to be born anew, that God is going to bring you into his family. You're going to have a new father. You're going to have a new family. You're going to have a new identity, a new way to live life. And you put your trust in him, you'll never be put to shame. Say, there's only two ways. You can't say, Jesus is, okay, I'm going to think about Jesus, and then I'm going to step over him on the way to something else in life. Say, no, your choice, your response to Jesus makes all the difference in the world. Because whether you like it or not, whether you obey the message of Christ or disobey is ultimately a reflection of our identity. That's what he's saying. Your opinion of Jesus isn't just an opinion. This is going to shape your identity and it's going to shape your destiny. It's going to shape your eternity. This is hard. This is hard. He's saying there's no two ways about it. It's very difficult for the people of God. You remember, they're going through all of this persecution. And their culture was deeply rooted in, in shame and honor. And so the worst thing in their lives wasn't about uh, being found guilty of something. It was being found shameful. It's kind of like the Asian cultures that, that many of us are from. It's a shame and honor culture. And he's saying in that culture, in the Roman Empire, the people of God were being shamed. For them to, to step out in faith was to, was to do something that the, Roman, that the empire considered to be shameful. And so for them, the question is, do I really need to, to give myself over to these things? And what Peter's saying here is, look, as you remember who you are, you've got to understand that if you put your faith in Jesus, okay, this is what, this is what he says in, in verse 6, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Saying in this life, in this life, you may experience a little bit of hardship. In this life, you may experience a little bit of shame. But ultimately, Jesus flips upside down these notions of honor and shame. He changes the very essence of what shame is and the very essence of what honor is. And he's saying, remember who you are. Remember your identity. This is so utterly crucial. It's so utterly vital. Because as you remember yourself, as you remember who you are, that will shape the kinds of actions and the behavior that 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 you make. We... As Olive and I raised Manny, one of our things that we tried to do was we, we tried to teach her uh, speak Korean to her at home because we know that she's going to learn English in uh, school and in America. She lives in America, so she's going to learn it. So we've been teaching for the first two years of her life Korean, and we've realized that we've come to a certain bump in the road where we can no longer teach her anything. And so Olive has been trying to teach her English these days, and as you know, she realizes that Manny can be a great opportunity for her to, to interact with people and to meet new people. And she goes to like Jimboree or the library or to Barnes and Noble, and they have book readings and things like that. And so she's been teaching her, hey, Manny, you know, sometimes people will ask you questions, and so you need to be able to answer them. And so she asked these three questions and has been practicing with her. So she says, what's your name? They say, uh, Manny. Say, how old are you? She says, uh, two. She always says, uh. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And then she laughs, and she gets really excited. She thinks she passed the test. And so I, I'm hearing them do this, and so... One day I, I said to Manny, I said, Manny, let's practice. I said, what's your name? And she said, uh, two. <laughs> I was like, no, that's not, that's, not, that's not your name. That's how old you are. And I think a lot of times when, we, when, when, when a child forgets who they are, it, kinda, it, it can be cute, it can be comical. But when we forget who we are, it can be extremely dangerous as people of God. 
And what Peter is saying is don't forget who you are. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the deepest core of your identity has changed. If someone asks you, who are you? They ask you to describe yourself. Maybe, you're, I don't know, you're speed dating or, or you're meeting somebody for the first time and, and you're in a group and you're doing some kind of a mixer and they ask you, hey, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. How do you describe yourself? Because all of us have different hats and different parts to our identity, right? I might say, well, I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a disciple of Christ, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a minister of the gospel, I love to play basketball, I love to watch basketball, uh, Korean-American, whatever it is, all these different things that I could say. And here, there, 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 there's a certain truth to this. The closer, the more precious something is to us, the more closely that will become part of our identity. The more we hold dear to something, the more closely we will use that to define who we are. So some of you, if you love playing lacrosse, you'll say, when someone asks you, hey, tell me a little about yourself, you say, I'm a lacrosse player. For those of you who, for whom family is, uh, is of utter importance, you will say, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a child to such and such, or I'm a, I'm a father or a mother to, to a kid. Uh, for those of you who are madly in love with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you say, well, I, I've been dating for six months or whatever it might be. But however more precious something is to you, that's how closely we're going to use that to define our identity. If you find your identity wrapped up in being this great K-pop star, then you're going to say, I'm a Korean-American. Right? The more precious something is to you, the more closely you will use that to define your identity. And he's saying, if Jesus Christ is precious to you, can you understand? Then the deepest part of your identity is not your ethnic makeup, is not the school that you graduated from, is not the job that you have, is not your vocation, is not the church that you go to. The deepest part of your identity is going to be wrapped up in the fact that you're a child of and disciple of God, right? That's who we are. And out of our identity, our behavior will come. See, here's what a lot of times, we, this, is, this is what we do a lot. We say, you know what, um, you have a choice to make, and we live out of our identity, right? You're 18 years old, you just turned 18, there's this rated R movie that you really want to watch, and you know that this movie uh, glorifies violence and sexuality. And so they say, hey, you want to go this movie? And you say, oh, I don't know, it's rated R. They're like, well, you're 18 years old, aren't you? Yeah, I am. You know what, I'm going to go. At that point in time, here's what you're saying, your identity as an 18-year-old, is more important than your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. You get what I'm saying? And a lot of times we say, because culture says this is okay, I'm going to do it, where maybe this wouldn't be something that Jesus would want you to do. And if Jesus is precious to us, do you follow the logic? If Jesus is precious and that becomes the core of our identity, then that shapes our behavior. But in that moment in time, I'm 21 years old. I'm going to go get drunk because that's what I can do because of the, the law tells me I can drink alcohol. In that moment, alcohol is more precious to us than Jesus, and we're defining ourselves not by our identity in Christ, but by our identity in the world. Does this make sense? I'm a high school student. I cheat on my exam. That's what all high school students do. At that moment in time, we're defining ourselves because our grades or our, our social acceptance as a student is more important to us than our identity in Christ. Well, that's just what girls do. We gossip all the time. That's what boys do. Boys talk about this kind of stuff all the time. We cut each other down all the time. That's what we do. I'm 65 years old. We retire. We go and we, we sit on the beach and that's all that we do. And in that moment in time, that's what we're glorifying because that's what's precious to us. Okay, that's what's precious to us. At the deep, at the core of who we are, we will always live out of what we think is our, is our primary identity at any given moment in time. 
I can't, go to, I can't go to that prayer meeting. I can't go to that Bible study because I've got to take care of this and that. I've got to do this or because I've, I'm too busy with that. At that moment in time, hey, that's what is most important to us, isn't it? And the more precious something is to us, that's how closely we will define our identity. And Peter is saying, look, deepest, the most functional and most foundational part of your identity is not in the fact that you're Asian American. It's not in the fact that you're Taiwanese or that you're Korean or that you're uh, Cuban or whatever it is. The deepest part of your identity is not wrapped up in your relationship with your spouse or relationship with your kid or with your, with your parents. It's not the fact that you're this kind of a student or you went to this school. The deepest part of who you are is that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you're a child of God and you've been bought with a price. He's saying, remember that. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember the price that was paid for you. Remember that you weren't bought with silver or gold, but with a treasure far more precious than these, that you are a child of God and live out of that identity and let that identity shape your behavior and the choices that you make. This is who you are, child of God. See, when it comes to Jesus, what you think about him and how you respond to him is never just about your opinion. It shapes your identity. And your identity always shapes your behavior. He's saying, remember that, guys. Remember this. You are not of this world. You're no longer like that. You have been bought with a price. Live in that. Live in that. The last thing that we see then, the last thing that we see is that though believers, as followers of Christ, Christians, believers may be nobodies in the world or to the world. We are somebodies to God. Though you might be nobodies to the world, you are somebodies to God, and we've got to see and we've got to believe. Verse 9, I get goosebumps whenever I read this. Man, this is like amazing. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. I think about the depth of what this means, that that these people were just scattered believers all all around, and and he's using this Old Testament imagery that that talks about Israel, and he says, this is who you are. And I don't have time to unpack all of these things, but, but all of these things are things that could never be, be, be given to them by, by some kind of a choice that they made or by their own merit. And nobody woke up one day in the Old Testament Israel and said, hey, you know what? I think I want to be a priest. I'm going to enter into priesthood training. It wasn't like that. This is only comes through your heritage, only comes through your lineage. He's saying now all of you are a royal priesthood. The message of the Old Testament is that it is extremely difficult to approach the living God and get away with it alive. It is extremely difficult for you to do that. And he's saying now you are a royal priesthood that every single one who puts their faith in Jesus Christ can now approach boldly and confidently before the presence of God. This is a privilege beyond anything that you could ever dream of. That in your time of need, you don't have to call on a priest and once a year he can go in and let you enter in. He's saying anytime you want, you can come before God. In your moment of greatest need, you don't have to wait for a mediator. He's saying you are a royal priesthood, that you can come before God. Not only that, but you can represent God to other people. Like this is such a, a, an amazing call that he's placed in the lives of those who believe. 
You're part of, of now a holy nation, a chosen people. And the word that's talking about is a new ethnicity, a new race that trumps all other races. You're part of a new race and its source is God alone. That God is the basis of this new people that have been chosen. That you've been set apart for a great and glorious purpose. Saying, listen to and understand the indescribable privilege that has been given to a child of God. But we also see that in, in all of these descriptions, this, this amazing fact that none of these things are about us as individuals. Saying, when you come to Christ, when you come to God, all of a sudden you are a new community that every single thing, our identity is deeply rooted in the new community of faith and the new people of God. This is who we are. And we cannot find identity apart from the community. He's been saying this all along, hasn't he? That you may be rejected and nobody's in the world. But you find your place amongst the people of God. That these are not, when he talks about these living stones, they're not just individual stones that are scattered about or, or piled up together. Saying so you are intimately linked together. And that in a, in, in, a, in a building, we are only as strong, and we've heard this before in our retreat, but in a building... A building is only as strong as its weakest stone. And he's saying every single one of us has to understand that the, purposes of, uh, the purpose of us coming together is not just for us to get our worship on and be strong because we're only as strong as a body as our weakest link. And if there are people who are struggling and there are people who are, 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 are falling by the wayside, it cannot be that we just say, let's keep on moving, keep on moving, let's go, let's go to the mission field, let's go and do all these great things while they're falling away. Think each one of you as living stones are intimately linked together. And understand this. The, the, the reason why most buildings fall apart is not because of an explosion, it's because of an erosion. It's one or two little things that begin to be eaten away by termites, and then it begins to crumble, it begins to fall. We as a congregation, we as a body of Christ are only as strong as our weakest, as our weakest link. That's why we, we, we encourage all when you pray right, for our worship service and you pray for the church, don't just pray for, for, for yourself and for your worship, but pray for those who are having a hard time. Whenever I, 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 we have prayer meetings, whenever we pray together before our worship service, we always pray. Don't just pray for yourself, but pray for those who can't pray for themselves. Pray for those who don't have the energy to pray for themselves. Pray for those who don't have the faith to pray for themselves. Pray for those who won't pray or won't come to God, who are struggling. And unless it's a miracle of grace, they won't come before the living God. And how many times has it been where we've been falling and we've been struggling? We didn't pray. We didn't seek the Lord. But someone prayed for us and we were brought into an intimate encounter with God that transformed our experience of him. See, we only go as far as we're galloping together, isn't that the picture of love from the end of chapter one? As we gallop together, we will only go as far as our weakest horse gallops. Guys, we need each other. We are desperately in need of doing life together in community. I realized that this week. I need people so much more. I need people so much more than I might lead myself to believe. I'm in desperate need of people who will look into my life and call sin, sin in my life. 
and, and talk about bad decisions. Say, hey, are you, being, uh, are you being true and faithful to the word of God in every area of your life? I need things like that. I need people like that. And I know that we all do. We need people who look into our lives and ask us difficult questions, who be willing to step on our toes. And, and sometimes we say, you know what? I don't, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to cross the line. But if they're already crossing the line in certain places, and we need to cross the line to bring them back. I think this is what we're called to do. This is who we're called to be. Like we need each other to run together and to do life together. Can't do it alone. We can't. And he talks about this amazing privilege, but why? Why do we have, why have we been granted with so much from God? Why has he blessed us with so much? I, I think uh, yeah, this morning as I'm praying and, and, and just meditating on this text, just thinking about this song that we used to sing that, that talks about like, um, the, the title of the song is Haven't You Been Good? And it speaks of God's favor on my life, always watching over me. My darkness turned to light and how all of these things, heaven's arms embracing me. And I was just thinking about as, as challenging as sometimes life can be, I think about the fact that God has been so good to me and to my family and to, to, to most of us, to all of us. Like, hasn't he been so good to bring that kind of a favor on our lives? But why? Why does he do that? Why are we such a blessed people? He says this here, the end of verse 9, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We have been blessed with all of these things so that we might rise up and proclaim. When he talks about the praises of one, literally it's saying the excellencies of one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light saying to praise him, to speak of his heroic deeds, to be an advertiser for the great work of God in our lives, to be a promoter of the great things that God has done in our lives. Think you weren't meant to keep all this to yourself. You're not a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God so that you might just be happy amongst yourselves, but so that you might declare those praises outside of the walls of the church as well as inside the walls of the church. We gather to declare his excellencies. We scatter to declare his excellencies, saying this is all part of our call and part of our mission. And when he, he uses this language, the language is, is to make known something that other people don't know to make known a mystery that was hidden, to be a promoter of these kinds of things. I, uh, <laughs> I've often talked about how the first time I, I ran a long-distance race was a two-mile race in Winter Park, and it was the death of me because I, I did no training, and I ate several pieces of pizza and had a couple fudge bars before. And uh, as I got to about the, uh, the one-mile marker, um, I ended up having to throw up pretty good, and all of that stuff came out. And... Um, it was quite embarrassing. But as I got to the end, this was this part of the coolest thing about this race. So as I was running, I ended up two miles in, in like 20 minutes or something like that. It's pretty bad. But I, I, I got to the finish line. And as soon as I finished, I was very happy because everyone that I was running with had finished before me. And they're waiting for me. And they're cheering me on. I felt really good. But I got to the end. And there was this lady. I never, I'd never met her before. But she came up to me. And she's like, excuse me. Excuse me. Are you Chinese? <laughs> And I said to her, no, I'm not. I was actually kind of offended by it. I said, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm Korean. Thank you. And she said, oh, that's too bad. And I was like, yeah, it is too bad, isn't it? And she said, no, well, I, I, work, for, I work for Disney, 
and I'm looking to promote Pirates of the Caribbean. You know that movie? I said, yes, I know that movie. She said, I'm looking to promote that movie in China, and I was looking for a Chinese person. You look like you would be a good pirate to advertise Pirates of the Caribbean in China. I was like, no way. I said, I could, I, I'm not Chinese, but I could be Chinese for the sake of your promotion. I didn't say that. I thought of that too late because I was breathing all heavy and oxygen not getting to my brain and stuff. And so I said, okay, see you later. And then I thought to myself, I was like, oh, shoot, I need to find her because I, I, think, I, could, I think I could pass for it. And I, I, I thought about that. And I, I tell people that story a lot that, hey, one day someone asked me to be a Chinese pirate to promote Johnny Depp and the Pirates of the Caribbean in China. Like I could have been plastered all over China declaring the wonders of this pirate ship movie. And what Peter's saying is, hey, you've been called to something so much greater. Do you, do you understand that you have been called to promote the excellencies of God wherever you are and to declare his praise? He's saying, this is a privilege. If you think it's a privilege to, to talk about Johnny Depp, holy cow, that you can talk about God Almighty who can, has literally changed your life. He's called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Say, don't be shy about this, guys. Don't be shy. You need to go and you need to proclaim this message because people need to hear it. Because people need to know it. People need to, to hear the wonders of God being declared in a way that they understand. In your life, in your deeds, in your words, go and declare this. It's a message of the cross. That because of the cross, this one that the world looked at and rejected, the one that God saw as chosen and precious, the ultimate somebody in the eyes of God was slain on a cross. And that cross demonstrates to you and to me who are nobodies in this world that when we live out our calling as a salt and light, we're rejected by the world. People make fun of us. People shun us. We lose our social status. But at the cross, we realize that in this world, though we may be shamed, we have been given the ultimate place of honor because we who are ultimate nobodies at the cross are seen by God as somebodies because he would give his one and only son, that he would take the thing that was most precious to him and he would offer that so that we could know how much we're worth. He says, you have been given an unbelievable, unbelievable value. You have been placed with unbelievable worth because of the cost to redeem your life. Saying you who are nobody has become somebody that you would be willing to go and talk about this one who has made your life into something meaningful. Go. And take this message, declare that message. This is what you are made for. Let's pray together. As we think about our lives, what does Jesus mean to you? How precious is that cornerstone. How precious is this Jesus to you? The one who gave up everything so that he could be with you. Gave up everything so that one day we could see him face to face, the object of our love and faith. That one day we can see him and we'll be with him for all eternity. 
that he has made us who are nobodies into somebodies with a glorious calling. Don't you want to live for this king? Don't you want to live for this Jesus? To live to make him known. No matter how much we build somebody up or boast about somebody, they will never be anything. But when Jesus enters into their lives, they become a person of worth and significance. The greatest treasure that we could give to a human being is to introduce them to the life-changing Jesus. Let's come to the Lord God and respond. Maybe for some, it's there's someone that God has really been just pounding in your heart and he's saying, hey, pray for this person. Bring them to church on Easter. Bring them to the hope of Christ. Maybe for others of us, we want to confess because we've made our identity into something less than Christ. We've been living for other things. We've been living for other desires. We've defined ourselves by other things and we've acted out of that identity. Whatever, whatever God may have been speaking to you, uh, to you today, let's spend a moment to respond in prayer. Can we do that? Let's spend a few moments in prayer. Confessing, repenting, responding, and then ultimately making a decision. God, this is how I want to surrender my life, and this is how I want to live in light of your word this week, today, even now. Let's pray together for a few moments. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us a new identity in Jesus Christ. That we're so much more than just a guy or a girl or a mother or a father or a spouse or a friend or a daughter. We're so much more than these things. And and sometimes we cheapen our identity in Christ because we cling to to these other things. But Father, as one man of God said, remind us to let our theology trump our biology, that we don't have to give in to these other things and to these idols of our heart. But you've set us apart to be a people different. You've set us apart so that we might love you and move towards you and declare your wondrous praises amongst the people who don't know, as well as to a people who already know, that we might be strengthened in our witness. So fill us, God. We need you. We need you more than we could ever say. Pray, Lord Jesus, in everything that we consider to be precious, that in light of the worth of Christ, all of these things we would surrender and consider lost compared to the beauty of knowing you. Move in us, Lord Jesus. Work in us for your glory 
for our joy and for our witness to the nations. Thank you for your word and its eternal truth. May we build our lives upon this precious cornerstone. In Jesus' name we pray.